Hello, 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 and thank you for downloading another fabulous, glittering, festive podcast from your friends at Simon Mayo's Books of the Year. I am Simon Mayo, and he's Books of the Year. I am Books of the Year. Uh, added tinsel with uh, today's episode, I, I feel. Although, obviously, people could be listening to this in the summer. So. They could be, and what I love, I, I love how we are now part of that sort of uh, universe where, you know, when they do Christmas specials on the telly, and you know that they were filmed in the middle of July, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was really hot outside, but they all had to wear jumpers. And and yet, here we are in, well, it's, it's sort of mid December recording this, yes. and it's going to go out as people are tucking in. Yeah, and it's going to, but it's going to go out forever. Yes. So as people are catching up and realizing that they what they've been missing, uh, we can't re- we don't really know what kind of things they're up. What to. has happened in the future? Tell us, tell us how it's going. That's right. Are we? Is the political system still all messed up? <laughs> has there been a meaningful vote? Yet? <laughs> yes. Well, oh, what do you think of that referendum? Well, vote? Yes, well that yes. was a surprise. There was. There, there you go. I'm into a betting shop. Anyway, more on that later. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, here we go. So Robin Ince is uh, going to be our, uh, our guest today. He's quite a festive guest in the sense that he was responsible for the seven lessons and carols for godless people. Yes, you've talked about that before, which is really good. I think we'll uh, engage with him if he turns up. Mm, Yeah. If he doesn't turn up, it's just going to be a limerick show. Yeah. So here we go, choosing some limericks. So this came about because we've got a 50 quid voucher from our friends at WH Smith. Yes, they are our friends, by the way. Yes, in spite of everything. (laughs) So thank you very much to them. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got 50 quid. So we're going to read these limericks. Thank you for everything that you sent in. And then we're going to decide who gets the 50 quid voucher. Yes. Mark Gorman. Now, and why is it about your mum? It's about me? my big because this is a combination of us doing those uh, adverts for Harry's Razors where we talk, started talking about my mum's face. And that's because you and I, whenever you say the word face, I oh, yeah, say your, your mum's face. face. Yes, exactly. So that's how. Teenage. Because we are <laughs> desperately clinging on. There yeah. one, this is Mark Gorman. There once was a Lancashire mum. With love, she was well overcome. She wed a fine fellow, their life was quite mellow, and Matt was the final outcome. That's not the best, it's rather sweet, that's that. Right. Uh, okay. That's where the sweet ones end. Uh, the once was a lady named Sheila, whose face was so soft you could feel her. Proud of son Matt's book podcast, she told him put the BBC in the past and stick with Simon, he's a keeper. That's Joe Monaghan. Yes. Does that go through at the final? Mm. Mm. Oh, Angie Cusky, because... Rhymes with Husky. Rhymes with Husky. Yeah. They sent in a couple. Yeah, go on. Matt's mum has the smoothest of faces, but she shaves in peculiar places. In Tesco, it's fine, and Primark don't mind, but in Waitrose, they confiscate razors. That's very good. That is very good. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I like that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she also has... Yes. Matt's mum was a lady called Sheila, who shaved with a potato peeler. A tip, she had said, in a book she had read, but surprisingly... No one believed that. Very good as well. Also, yes, yes. Uh, Helen Leadham says Simon tried to address the disgrace that Matt's mum had no books at her place. Though Matt accepted the fact that this was what she lacked, he just sighed and retorted, "Your face," which is also very good. I should point out, my mum has, having listened to the previous podcast, wants me to point out she does read books. She just gets them out from the library and then returns them. That's why there's none on her shelves. Okay, thank so you for correcting I've, me. I've, I've corrected her. Hi, Matt's mum. Yeah, sorry. Graham Whalen, uh, loving the podcast and all of your guests. Mm. Really interesting. Here's my limerick. Matt's mum, Sheila, is ace with a razor, but some say she's never been braver than the time that she whipped the hair from her lip with the use of a Jedi lightsaber. Oh, I like that one as well. I think that's very good. 
I don't think that's as good. Not as good as Angie Rhymes with Cusky and Waitrose, but mm. I, I, that is the front runner, I'd say. Uh, Steve Page says, uh, there is a smooth lady called Sheila whose son is a bit of a geezer. She could make more space for books, but her face has never been much of a reader. To be honest, she said to her son... Oh, verse two. Yeah, I prefer my face out in the sun. I tee off at eight. I don't want to be late. Golfing's a whole lot more fun. Very good. She likes her golf. Doesn't she? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Steve Page. Oh, Sheila, you're lots of fun. And just think of all that you've done. You may not read books, but you've kept your smooth looks despite Matthew being your son. Yes. That's not really a limerick. No, I think. no, and and you've used Matthew, uh, which obviously okay, uh, no one. Uh, and 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 full marks to Tanya Noble who managed to get Nabby Cater into her particular limerick, which I uh, I think it deserves special mention. Well done, uh, Claire. Claire Joyner. Matt's mum is a lady of leisure. Playing golf is just one of her pleasures. She's got quite a swing, and now here's the thing: she's become a national treasure. I think that will get my mum's vote, um, but uh, I think I'd, I, I'd have to say. I mean, obviously, your decision's final on no, this. No, time. no, no. Well, we I can mean, vote. you know, uh, but I, I think, I think the uh, Angie Rhymes with, with Husky with the Waitrose one. I think that's the that's the standout one. See, I quite like the potato peel one, which she sent in. Why don't we get? Robin Ince to decide Robin Ince. which of the two. Well, when is he the turns best. up, that would be nice. There he is. Oh, is he there? Oh, lovely. Thanks for coming in, Robin. If you could come on just in, come on in. Through. So basically, I agree with you that mm-hmm. those two are very good, and they're probably that it's probably the best. So Angie Cusky is the winner. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter which one we like. No, it the doesn't most. really. No. But let's bring let's bring Robin in. And, uh, He's turned up. Yes, he has, as it turns Hello. out. Yes, Sorry, I, I, I couldn't get hi. on the previous train. I don't live in London. They're so full. How are you? <laughs> All right, very good. Uh, so, is the tea arriving momentarily? These part. glasses are too flat, aren't they? What a hipster place we're in. <laughs> it is, what are we doing here? Well, we booked it for you because we know the kind of guy yeah. you are, obviously. So we want you to decide on the winning limerick. Okay, the, they're both from the same woman, so she's going to win the 50 quid book right. voucher anyway. Matt's mum has the... They're both about Matt's mum. Yeah, and, and the smoothness of her face. Yeah. Matt's mum has the smoothest of faces, but she shaves in peculiar places. In Tesco, it's fine, and Primark don't mind, but in Waitrose, they confiscate razors. OK, that's number one. I like that. There's a Freudian perspective. OK, yes. what, is there? I think so. I think there's other things going on there that we don't even notice. The supermarket... Oh, don't worry, look, I've started therapy. <laughs> Keep moving on. OK, and, and the other one... Uh, the other one, Matt's mum was a lady called Sheila who shaved with a potato peeler. A tip she had said in a book she had read, but surprisingly, no one believed her. I like the first one. Yes, I agree. I'm going to go with yeah, that. Yeah, There's yeah, lovely yeah, images, yeah. lots yes. of images. Yeah. Yeah. See, I like the second one with oh, a potato really? peeler. Oh, really? Okay. And I've got three votes. <laughs> You've got... <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, like that's UN. fine. Okay, yeah, that's right, yeah. I'm on the Security Council and <laughs> I'm Russia <laughs> and you're... Uh, uh, Zimbabwe. So Let me just check how you've manipulated my Facebook. Do you know what? Now I realise that maybe you were right. The second one is better. There you go. Very good. And very topical. Anyway, Angie Kusky, uh, I think, wins, yes. therefore. So she wins the book voucher. And we've still got a Books of the Year sweatshirt and T-shirt, which we should give to the, a runner-up. Yes. Uh, uh, my runner-up would be... Helen Leadham, maybe? Yeah, or... Helen Leadham, yes, yes. That's, that, that would be my favourite, yeah. Yeah, Helen Leadham. I do hope that either Helen or somebody in her family is a large, because that's all we've got left, <laughs> as far as... Uh, in a sweatshirt, died. everyone's a large. Everyone's a large. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Robin is quite a slim guy here, yeah. but you'd, <laughs> you know, you'll, you'd be a large in our sweatshirt. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. yeah. We're all, anyway, happy Christmas to you. Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. kind of. I've kind of you know missed it almost. <laughs> you know that bit, the build-up, because I've been so busy just touring the whole time, that then suddenly it's there. 
how's there's the a new sense of panic. And how's the tour going? I've had a lot of fun. I mean, if, I've literally I haven't had a day off since the 10th of September. Every single day I've been in a different town or city. And uh, it's been. F- and I've just hit that point now where my immune system's saying, hey, we don't need to be as effective now. You've only got a week left. There's only a week left of doing Brian Blessed impersonations talking nonsense about the nature of anxiety and creativity. It's okay. You can be sick. You don't really talk nonsense, though, do you, Robin? I don't think you ever talk nonsense. There's always, you know, even if, even if you're being ephemeral, there's always some substance in there. Well, I wonder if it's because the rest of the world has become so nonsensical that I may now appear to be far more rational, where in truth there would have been a time where... Because I, I did something the other day, some late-night TV thing, and I, I thought, oh, what a load of rambling nonsense. And then I heard people say, yeah, that really... Uh, that's exactly... Yeah, yeah, you cut straight through then. I thought, really? I thought this was an Edward Learish moment for me, but... Excellent. Well, anyway, uh, Robin is here because uh, his book is I'm a Joke and So Are You, a a comedian's take on what makes us human. Matt's going to describe this cover. Uh, so we've got so the background is white, and then uh, in the middle we've got three sort of um, uh, coloured discs: blue, green, and I'm going to say that's pink, um, which are sort of interlacing uh, amongst each other. And then Robin's big face right in the middle of the middle green disc. Robin Ince, I'm a joke, and so are you. A comedian's take on what makes us human. And then some uh, very kind words from Matt Haig, mm. uh, who we're a big fan of, and Stuart Lee writes the forward. Yes, uh, at times as acerbic as Stuart normally is. Uh, delightful. Somewhat begrudgingly, yeah. yes, he's very writing funny. the forward. Yeah, there's a very, oh, I noticed you didn't, you know, he's <laughs> like interviewed me and there's none of that in, in the book you know and I was all br- he says he said he did a really long interview with me you know and I didn't it was about 20 minutes before he went on stage over Skype it was terrible I mean the interview wasn't terrible he said that he was busy he was just having himself made up to be acerbic you know the acerbic makeup required anyway so but you know skip the forward it's fine <laughs> yeah, some- he's a very funny forward I have yeah, to admit I was very I, I could tell what time of night he wrote that and and one of the reasons that Robin's here, apart from the fact that we fans of Robin Ince anyway, is that you tweeted somewhat forlornly that uh, the only TV show that wanted to book you kept on rearranging, and other shows were cancelling. Yeah. So we thought, well, we'll have you because uh, because we like you. Thank you very much. That's all right. Yeah, so, it's, a, it's a weird thing when you find yourself with PR go. Got a great one for you. You'll be reviewing the newspaper with Rusty Lee. They won't be mentioning your book. But I will presume that people will just look up on the internet. Presume you've got one. It could really <laughs> see sales going boom. Yeah, I think I, I remember being asked to do to do that. That's like ITV in the morning, isn't it? Mm. You that you go on to review the papers, and actually, you're not reviewing the papers properly because they tell you which stories really. Yeah, they oh, say we'd behind like, the curtain. We'd like we to cover these particular stories, really. And I think, but they're not, they're the stories I'm not interested in. Why, you know, you so it doesn't really matter who you are or what you want to say, these are the stories that they want to cover. So, so basically you don't read the papers then. You're basically, you, you're given the paper, they say, right, this is the story we want you to talk about. Read that story and yeah. then talk about that. So it's, it's part of the game. You know, you want to promote the book that you've got out and they want something that's bright and lively, but they don't play their part. And they don't. You don't actually wow. get to mention the book. See, I still even remember the first time I ever did one of those shows on TV would have been about 20 years ago. And the stories I did were uh, James Brown boasted to a woman that he had had bull's testicles placed in him to uh, make him more sexually vigorous. Yeah. Uh, something about some goths who'd cannibalised someone. And then I was going to do one about uh, someone writing a really nasty article about Kate Moss, what does she look like? And just as I was saying in the meeting I was going to do that, I realised that was the journalist who was also on the show with me and sitting opposite. And I went, and I haven't really worked out the third story yet. <laughs> <laughs> But why, why I remember those strange stories, I don't know. So uh, Robin's book, uh, I'm a Joke and So Are You, this is, as, this is Robin's 
quoted uh, in the Guardian as the Bacardigan polymath. <laughs> That's who, that's who Robin. <laughs> that's what I want to aspire to. Sort of wearing a cardigan in your honour, and you're not even wearing no, one. No, my cardigan. Got, I've, I've I've run out of cardigans because I've been on such a tour. Uh, I've, I have seven exactly the same cardigans, and at least seven or eight exactly the same shirts. And uh, but today it's a green V neck because you know I'm not uh, much as I I am a martyr to my fashion. Yes. Uh, every now and again. So. Um... The, the 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 red circle, the pink circle that Matt said, with a comedian's take of what makes us human, kind of gets us into the uh, into the area that you're discussing. So just explain what you have tried to do with this book because it's it's very original. Well, the starting point of it was I happened to be doing a a, a benefit for uh, the mental health charity Mind um, one night in Edinburgh, and it happened to coincide just before I went on stage with the American comedian Eddie Peppertone to talk about mental health and comedy. We found out about the death of Robin Williams and the fact that he killed himself. And the next day, I I looked at all the newspapers and all the websites, and so many of them were going down a very trite route, which was to say, oh, this is it's just the traditional arc, isn't it? You know, trauma, comedian, and then comedian, you know, kills themselves. And and I thought, well, there's, there's many... It, it's fitted into this myth of a comedian. But actually, of course, it's a much broader story. And, and, you know, I won't go deeply into the different stories of what was going on in Robin Williams' life towards the end. But he was, you know, he was suffering from, from yeah. various conditions. And, and I started... Originally, I went off and I made a documentary about comedians and mental health, you know, myth, truth, the in-between area. And then I thought, well, to me, the really interesting bit is because the myth of stand-ups is, you know, every year there's more documentaries about Frankie Howard and Kenneth Williams and all of these things. Uh, the good way, starting point, is to go, if we use comedians as the anatomical model, of all human beings. Because what we are is really we're megaphones for what a lot of people keep in their head. And sometimes you go out on stage and you talk about something, you go, I wonder if this idea is too weird. And then people come up to you in a bar afterwards and they go, oh, I'm really glad you said that because I was scared because I've had this thought or that thought. So what I wanted to use was use the megaphone that comedians have and then use that to look at all human beings, you know, about our anxieties, our neuroses, our imagination, how we deal with life and death and love. So is it... A, so, okay... Which gives you a certain structure. So is it? But it's it's kind of you're aiming quite high with this, aren't you? Because if this is philosophy, because if it's what makes us human, that's about consciousness, and I don't know. That's going to take you in some into some unusual areas, isn't it? That's going to take you into two hundred seventy thousand words, <laughs> and then the editor <laughs> rings you up almost in tears and says, "We're going to need a bigger editor," which is kind of what happened in the first draft. I mean, really, I already want to, you know, I'd, I'd like to write thousands and thousands of just footnotes to what I wrote in the book because trying to make sure I want to make sure there was enough. It was a bit like you know, Infinite Monkey Case, the radio show that, that I do with Brian Cox, which was I wanted to make sure there were enough ideas in each chapter that people could go off and explore them themselves as well. You know, I'm not trying to give anyone any grand answers. Uh, what I'm trying to get, I hope, is some tools to go, oh, this is something that really interests me. I mean, it's been very interesting, the chapters that people have particularly found affecting. Sometimes when I do readings, you know, things that I thought were perhaps peculiar to me and a few others, then you start getting letters from people and they say, oh, when you wrote this about a particular, you know, part of, of say, trauma, uh, or when you wrote this about dealing with, with death, it immediately brought back to me something that happened to me 40 years ago. And, and that's, you know, there's something that I think is very beautiful about some of the stand-ups who are working now, and I think particularly of people like Richard Gadd and Hannah Gadsby, is you watch the audience when they're playing to them and you see them when they leave, and they leave with perhaps permission to be, to express things that previously they've kept hidden. 
And I, and I think that's, you know, we live in a time where in one way we've never had an easier way to express ourselves with the, the so, way social media is, but also there's never been an easier way to shame people and for people to be scared. And we're seeing in uh, every time I go to universities and I talk to therapists there, and, and we are seeing a lowering of age in terms of people suffering from various different forms of what we might broadly say in a Victorian manner, melancholy. So does this, before we just get into the, in, into the nuts and bolts, is, are, are comedians unique in that aspect? Could, I mean, is there a version of this book, if you were a priest or if you were an actor or if you were a guitarist, could you have done the same kind of exploration and said, are we, are we different? Is there something we can learn from being guitarists or preachers and still end up in the same kind of place or are comedians perhaps different? but i think because comedy is about going out there and expressing idea you you have to make sure that in the end you can't just you know that the weirdness has to ultimately be a, a shared weirdness somewhere in the room or eventually the audience is going to be one and it's going to be you looking in the mirror so i do think there's something about the ideas of humanity and there's that line that i think i mentioned in the book george carlin comedy is a very low art but it can be a very potent art and i think the immediacy of it it can also happen sometimes with i talk in the book about a story about my friend Grace Petrie who's a wonderful singer-songwriter and uh, she, we were doing a gig together, me, her and Josie Long and there was someone in the audience who looked very sad and uh, not because like they were having a bad time by the way, yeah, that does happen as well uh, but it was someone who looked like they shouldn't have come out that night and we found out later on there was this, this remarkable story which is Grace writes these songs which are sometimes when she writes songs about love they are very much from the position of, of how she's experienced love, she's a young woman who's a lesbian and this woman sat there and she left a letter for her six months later, said, I was at your gig with Josie and Robin and uh, I, I wasn't feeling very happy and I didn't know what was wrong. And suddenly I watched you sing and I went, oh, I've realised what I'm doing wrong. I'm a lesbian and I'm going out with Gavin and I really shouldn't be going out with Gavin. And, and it was like, obviously all those things were inside her, but the immediacy of this one woman standing there with these beautiful and powerful songs and there, there, is, there is something about that communication which I think so has that's a music. certain purity so to So that's it. music. That's in music as well. But it's about, so I don't think it's necessary. It doesn't have to just be comedy. It, but it is that thing. Sometimes you're in a small room, or it might even be a big room, but I think more often than not, it might be a theatre or an art centre or a pub, and there's one person on stage, and they appear to be looking at you. And at that moment, there may well be something which goes, right, that's, I'll kind of realise I'm not the only one. I think that I, I want to talk about that sort of that, that power of comedy and of comedians. You sort of you clear your throat at the start of this book by saying, "Yo, we, I get it. You know, comedians. You know how how big a deal is it?" And I I would like to put a, a, a counterpoint there. And in fact, during the book, you put you put pretty pretty similar counterpoint yourself. I would argue in the world of entertainment, there is not a harder job than a stand-up comedian. You find out very quickly whether an audience is with you or not. That I, I would argue perhaps with a you know rock star going on stage, everyone's cheering the classics, that's fine. Uh, an actor goes on stage and there's perhaps silence for a while, well, that's also fine. And, you know, I know it's now become a cliche that theatre is overrated, but my goodness, I've seen jokes in theatres. I saw one in the West End this summer, which was a, a there was a, it was a very, very well-known play and they did a joke about Donald Trump and I said to my wife when we came out, if that had been on a comedy show, if that had been on TV, they would have edited that out because it was so weak. It got a, <laughs> it got a round of applause, almost standing ovation about a Donald Trump joke. And I, I would make the argument that comedians, I could draw you a line between comedians, rock stars and Premier League footballers. And the common line there is that the public perception is that what you do is very easy, 
and yet it's not. It's actually very difficult. Premier League footballers suffer under the uh, problem that everyone thinks football is very, very simple, and yet they're getting paid a huge amount of money. How very dare they? Comedians, all you're going on is you're going on stage and talking about how bad airline food is. How very <laughs> dare you? How very dare you? And, and yet we don't say that about actors. And I've never, never understood that. I've never understood why. I, so th- this is a long-winded way of me saying, do you accept that stand-up comedy is actually vastly underrated. I do think it's underrated. I think it is an art form. And I do think, as you were saying as well, that bit that you're found out very, very quickly or they've decided they don't like you. So that it, that very, that immediacy is also the immediacy which I think gives it its potency. That, you know, when you're playing to... You know, because some nights... I remember, in fact, in fact, a night with, you know, Stuart Lee where sometimes if you just judge it by laughs as well, that doesn't work. Because I remember doing years and years ago, some, I, I think it was the Meccano Club, in which is, don't go looking for it, it's not there anymore. And uh, going... And Stuart didn't get the biggest laughs of the night. There was one guy who went on, he got loads of really big laughs, but they, you know, boom, 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 boom. But afterwards in the bar, I could overhear people, and the one thing that they were talking about was that guy who was doing stuff a lot slower and the potency of it, and it stayed with them as well. So I, I do think, I, I mean, I, I would never call it the hardest job in the world because I think you have to really want to do it. And if you really want to do it, you do it. You know, I couldn't do, you know, I'm never going potholing for a living. I'm never going mountain climbing. I've never taken those kind of risks. You know, comedy is what I love doing. And most of the people I talk to in the book as well are people who are really driven and really love it. It really is, you know, whether it's Noel Fielding talking about it, whether it's Sarah Kendall, uh, you know, that that excitement of when you get it right or when you get someone coming up to you afterwards and you know you've been useful. You know, that's what we're all looking for as human beings, aren't we? We're all hoping that in some ways we're useful. OK, I wanna, before, I'm worried about your tea because oh, you I haven't poured that out. Yeah. <laughs> While you're pouring, as a, as a, can I mildly disagree with you then? Because yeah, I'm not sure that the way you just described your art is something Ricky Gervais would agree with. Does he go on to be useful? No, I mean, I, well, interesting, I talk with him about ethics, and we do disagree on this. You know, there's, there's, I, I think jokes... I, I think if you just say a joke's just a joke, it really, you know, but it's, especially if it's about certain kind of issues, groups, whatever it might be, they are very potent. I remember talking to a guy, uh, a mixed race guy who who lived near the Embassy Club in in Manchester, mm. and you know that idea that when you go and see Bernard Manning, it was oh, it's just jokes. He said, you know, you knew not to walk past the club at kicking out time because people were fired up. They were, you know, that's uh, mm. and so I I. I think there are those who are, you know, perhaps looking for the beloved entertainer role, and it is just jokes. You know, I, I, I don't think, you know, Jimmy Carr. Uh, it's, it's again, it goes. George Carlin said so many great things again because he loved comedy. You know, huge influence by people like Lenny Bruce. But he talked about the difference between the comedian and the comic. And he said a comic is someone who goes on stage, someone like Bob Hope, and you laugh for an hour, and they're, they're just wonderful. Yeah, but you know nothing about them afterwards, and you and your view of the world hasn't changed. And it's a different form. I mean, that comedy, like music, there's lots of different genres. You know, there's perfect pop, and perfect pop is there to pogo to for for two minutes, two seconds, and then sometimes there's music. And I, I think particularly of people like PJ Harvey or Nick Cave, where it means so much. You know, when I when I went to see Nick Cave last year, I, I saw him this year as well. I see him any year I can. That moment. Of of communication again to the audience. I remember my wife saying, 7,000 people in Nottingham Arena. And, uh, and she was like, oh, isn't this a brilliant audience? I said, it is. But they're all so nice. I said, of course they're nice. They're readers and they drink. That's a good mix. <laughs> and uh, But also watching when people were pogoing and watching when people were crying, it meant something. And I think that's the difference is, are you creating a product? And there's nothing wrong with that, which just says, here's fun. 
and then the fun's over when you go and get your pizza and you think that was fun? Or do you hope that some of the ideas stick? So, you know, someone like George Carlin would be a good example, or someone like Hannah Gadsby. That's more than just a show. That's reaching out to people. Yeah. One of the one of the chapters in the book is about taboo. Uh, and it is it seems to be a particularly contentious area. In fact, in the news in the last couple of days has been uh, a comedian called Constantin Kissin, I think his name is, who was asked to sign a no tolerance policy and he had to agree to uh, having no nothing about sexism, religion or xenophobia. Is this was at uh, SOAS. And he said I'm not signing that. Yeah. And even though he might not have had any jokes about that, but he just thought, I'm not signing that. And you, in the book, talk extensively with Tim Minchin and with Ricky Gervais, who've all thought long and hard and might have difference of opinion about what you can say and what you can't say. But I wonder how comedians, you know, I suppose this is a summing up and also your your view on this, in, an, in, in quite a difficult area where a lot of universities talk about safe spaces where there are certain things that you cannot say. How how comedy tiptoes around that? Well, I personally would I wouldn't sign that contract, even though I might agree with a lot of the ethics in it. I remember a few years ago there was a thing where there were a lot of kind of jokes about rape on the the Edinburgh um, Fringe Festival, and people wrote some very interesting pieces about that, some very thoughtful pieces about that. And then someone wrote to me and said, "Would you be one of the people who joins in us in this uh, this promise that you sign a promise never to do jokes about this?" And I said, "Well, one." It's highly unlikely that I'll do jokes about it, but I said, I don't want to sign a prompt because that to me seems to be almost a thoughtless act. I've signed the promise. It's, it, it's like that moment of the truly fundamentally fundamentalist religious person where you don't have to think about the ethics because you've had them written down for you and you've signed the form. Yeah, and so I understand that. I also, though, I do, at the same time, I worry a great deal about the fact that there's a lot of talk about, oh, free speech is ending, but and it's not. You look at all the comics that are working out there. Every now and again, there's an example like this. Now, in fact, even the the charity, I think it was a it was a UNICEF uh, gig. It was going to be. Even they've kind of said, "Oh, yeah, that was probably a bit much of a contract." And so as have said, "Well, actually, we, no, we we don't believe you have to sign that contract." So I do think contracts like that are, are not worth it. They're 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 not the right thing to to do. That's not the way progress happens. Sure, but okay, I, I, I take that point. But in in the kind of safe space debate, the issue is you can't even talk about it. You know, so if you've got, in that I mean, space, I mean, yes, you can uh, go outside the space and you can start talking about it. Yeah, it's so, an interesting. I was talking about that last night. Actually, I was, I was doing an event with. Uh, uh, so, would you do a transgender joke if, 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 if the context was right? My, I have nothing that I wouldn't joke about if one it fitted in with what the kind of worldview that I wanted to say. So. I don't. I think the most important person that I interviewed in that book is it's who the book's dedicated to, and I'll mention him because I mention him whenever I can, because he died early this year, and he was a very wonderful human being, a man called Barry Crimmins. And when I interviewed Barry, and Barry, uh, he really, he fought a lot of, you know, no one could go, oh, Barry was a snowflake. Man, he took AOL to Washington in the end. Laws were changed because of what Barry did in terms of, I, I won't go into the full story, but please watch the film uh, all about his life, Call Me Lucky. It's an amazing film. And Barry, so he was he was prepared to fight. He there were jobs he would never get because of the politics he was talking about, the people he was fighting against. He was not someone who uh, liked the idea of kind of having trigger warnings or anything like that. Uh, and when I interviewed him, he, for instance, he said to me, he said, uh, uh, "I've I've never really made jokes about cancer." He said because I've never thought of one so pertinent, so funny, that I then would be happy if I found out some people in the audience had become upset because they'd remembered someone who. So that's kind of that's the rule that I follow, which is. When I write 
a joke or when I come up with an idea, I do sometimes think, oh, how can this be received? And who would it upset? And am I happy? Will I be happy to stand in the bar afterwards when someone harangues me? Now, sometimes I am very happy to do that. I think, no, do you know what? You've, it happens on the internet all the time. Of course, we've all done that on social media where we forget how subjective people read 280 you know, characters. Am I happy to argue this? And that's my rule. So am I happy to... Will I sometimes upset people who I wish I hadn't upset? Yes, that will happen. But I hope that, again, the, one of the important things, is, as Barry said, he said, you know, words are shrapnel and you have to think about where you fire them. And that, to me, is the beautiful thing about free speech. Free speech is not saying everything you have in your head. Free speech is thinking, I can say anything. So what do I really want to say? Because if you say everything, then all of it becomes worthless. If you decide, right, that's what I want to talk about tonight. So that, does that make sense? I hope that makes... Yeah, so so, so that, my, my rule is... Am I happy? And I've changed opinions on time. There's times I've done jokes in the past where I've talked to someone after. I thought, yeah, actually, do you know what? I can see how that will be Could you give received us an in the wrong way. Of- I'd rather not, actually, because okay. I don't like the jokes anymore. And they're okay. jokes that I, I I would tell you in in a immediately, even by the fact of, of the way this is being listened to, I kind of think, ah, do you know what? That that seems quite snotty and classist now. Or that, you know, there's lots of different mm-hmm. things. My worldview hopefully continues to change. Yeah, I was, was interesting. Just before Matt comes in, uh, <clears throat> when I was re- reading the taboo chapter, which is a very, very interesting chapter, I was thinking it's a bit like when you when when your kids are young, you try and tell them what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate, and it might be that there's a certain taboo word, which is which is you might say quite happily on your own or with your mates, but you try and say it's fine. But if grandma's in the room, then it actually is wrong to say it. That word becomes wrong and. If you're on the radio and if you've been on the BBC all your life, like like I have, I remember interviewing fun-loving criminals, right? This okay. was on Five Live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Huey Morgan, who now has a broadcasting career, mm. would not stop swearing. Would not stop swearing. This is on live radio. And it's getting to the point where the producer's saying, we're going to have to, we're gonna have to take him out. We're going to have to finish this. We're going to have to go to travel or whatever it is. The curse of speech radio because you can't go to music, yeah. which is what everyone else would do. And then the drummer says, who's, who's, who's English, said, Huey, when that red light's on, your mum's in the room. And he went, oh, okay. It's like, to me, it wasn't rocket science, but, anyway, but, he, but he got it. And, but there is something, it's, it's about context yeah. and who you're talking to. And I guess if you have a radio sensibility, which is what I have, I was kind of err on the side of, of caution because you because on a radio audience you got everyone listening you've got people from every single walk of life every class every color they're hopefully they're all listening and that changes the way i think you approach entertainment i also think i, I wrote a poem last year about checking your privilege and i think you know i am uh you know middle class white heterosexual male and I, it should be something you think about i'm not saying I, I used to introduce it by saying it's not that i haven't been beaten up but I had to say something first. I had to do more than walk out of the door and be whatever I was, you know. And that and that is, and I know people get all antsy about, oh, does that mean I don't? you can say whatever you want? But have a little thought about everyone suffers. You know what? Being human's really hard. It's a really weird thing to be self-conscious and know you're going to die and all that. These are tough things, but it doesn't mean we've all had the same level. And I think that's one of the arguments. I suppose I can talk about this. I think I've said it publicly, so it'll be all right. But years ago, when when Ricky, am I? I don't know if I'm right to say this. When he when he used the word. Uh, in a joke and that that led to and I actually I rang him up and we talked about this and to me one of the things that was important about that argument was when he started to tell people how the word was used as if he knew 
Now, this is the thing that for a lot of us, we may use a word and think that word's fine. And then you find out, like for a lot of people who are, you know, who who have children or are themselves handicapped in different ways, they knew how the word may be thrown at them and might be thrown at their children. And they knew better. And that's the thing. Sometimes we have to hold our hands up and go, do you know what? This is not my experience. And you have an experience which is a lot more direct. And I should listen. I shouldn't just shut this debate down. I want to take to to a another aspect of the book that I I found very interesting, which is when you have your brain scanned and you have it done. And this is what I I've I found particularly interesting. Everyone will be familiar with just a minute on on Radio Four, which um, I've I've heard many interviews with comedians where they say that is one of the hardest uh, panel shows to be on. It's just because you've no idea what's coming up. You've got to talk for a minute without repetition, deviation, or hesitation. And and we all we all get the results. And we all get how it works. And so therefore, having your brain scanned while that's happening was obviously very enlightening. And I I think you have it done, or you talk about it as well in in the context of the set list, which I think people Mm. might not be. Just explain what set list, because I saw one of these at the Edinburgh Fringe. It is amazing. Set set list, basically, uh, a comedian goes up on stage and then various different odd phrases, strange groups of words come up, and then you have to perform it as if this is your normal set list. So you can't go, oh, um, uh, oh, I can't think. You have to, the moment it says, you know, Neville Chamberlain's tricycle, you have to go, ah, well, the thing about, uh, I'm sure you'll probably remember my cracking routine about Neville Chamberlain. I'm going to do it tonight. Yeah. Who wants to hear the classic Neville Chamberlain? And you're buying time, finding out how you're going to talk about Neville Chamberlain's tricycle or whatever. And and it's a really, you know, beforehand, you watch everyone. I remember doing it one night where who was on with, like, it was Dylan Moran was on, Greg Proops was on, Susan Cowman. And, uh, so, and and you watch everyone else go up and you go, oh, I wouldn't have anything on that. I wouldn't have anything. Oh, what would I have? Oh, no, I've got that one. And you get so, your adrenaline. I remember Phil Jupiter said it's catnip for comedians. And the first time you go on and it all comes together and you make up 10 minutes of, of utter, one of my favourite things was one of the reviews I got when I did it once was someone went, um, you know, this was a good thing, but obviously he used some stuff that he had already. And I wrote to him and I went, no, 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 no. I, I have nothing whatsoever on John Wayne Gacy's merry-go-round. I've never had a routine on that. And But it is, that's a fascinating thing about creativity because when you're placed in that moment, you can come up with 10, 15 minutes of stuff. But if you sit at home going, right, I've got to write a new routine about this you wait and you wait and you write another rubbish joke and you find a pun. Sometimes you put a pun at the top as a threat to yourself to go, if I don't come up with anything else, the only joke I'm going to have is going to involve, yeah, so that threat is always there. So it's, um, yeah, it's a fascinating thing, creativity, where placed in in the moment of adrenaline, the moment of, of you must create, suddenly bang there you go and and what is interesting there is that um having talked about you know whether comedians are different in any way actually that brain scan seemed to show that comedians are a bit different because they tested comedians being put through the just a minute scenario and with you know those sort of electrodes um attached to their heads and and scanning their brains and found that there was actually something different about a comedian in that situation well basically though it's the same as any profession that you have, uh, you're using different parts of your brain, What is you don't need as much blood to go to that bit because you're using it all the time. So it's not a moment of, what, what do I do? Vroom. It's kind of... So, and of course, as, as you know also from the book, they've never been able to publish it because they couldn't actually use the results because too many comedians got so worried that they weren't doing as well as the previous comedian. They started <laughs> wiggling around and going, am I doing as well as Sarah Millican? Oh, no, no, it's fine. You don't even have to be funny. You just have to make rubbish up about ginger nuts. That's all we require for this... 
No, but I mean, stop wiggling around. If you wiggle around, we can't use the results. <laughs> and uh, so we found out mainly yet more about our egos. Great big comedian <laughs> egos. Uh, we'll talk more with Robin in, in just a moment. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. It's Books of the Year. Uh, Robin Ince's book is I'm a Joke and So Are You, a Comedian's Take on What Makes Us Human. I was still thinking about uh, taboo words, but only because you were talking about the Ricky Gervais mm. conversation. And just the other day at Radio 2, we had a conversation about um, a song which is called, if I remember right, Sweet and Psycho. That's what it's called. It might be Sweet But Psycho. No, Sweet and Psycho. And I felt very uncomfortable playing it. Uh, and I know there's been there are some other producers who are thinking I'm not sure we can do this now. The artist responsible is talking about herself and her own experience and being called that. The thing is, it's such a good pop song. You find yourself joining in with the chorus and therefore making "Psycho" a kind of an acceptable nursery rhyme style mm. chant, which is kind of going back to the mm. point that you were making that you're kind of liberating this word, which really is not helpful in the context of talking about mental illness. But because this singer is writing it about herself, she says, I have a right to sing this song because it's all about me. But I'm not sure if it passes the test because I can now hear it being sung as a playground tune, you know? Well, that's always the difficulty with songs, isn't it? Their meaning is lost so quickly. I I think, you know, most obviously of something like Baby Bird, you know, where, you know, you're gorgeous, which has nothing to do with saying, can I just say, you are gorgeous. It's, you know, this kind of, it's about exploitation. And yet it's the first wedding song for many people. And you think, listen to the... The mm. verses before the your God, yeah. and so I, th- I think there's always you know that that problem with songs. You know, we've seen it of course most recently with Fairy Tale of New York as well. You know, which has there's been a lot of discussion about that scumbag you maggot and yeah. so on. And 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 that's uh and I think all of these things. Yeah, unfortunately, people leap on and, and oh, political correctness gone mad so quickly. And I think well, let's just it's it's not there's words and language is you know this rare thing that we have as a species. And to again just to think over them and to wonder why. People People might sometimes have umbrage and why, you know, oh, yeah, what does that mean? What does that mean to that person? I think all of those things, if anything, they open up a much bigger narrative. Um, the, your, your final chapter is about death. Um, and you talk about, I mean, again, we're talking about things that are appropriate and timing and everything. But you you start the chapter by saying that when your mother died, I think, was it four weeks before you made a joke about it? Yeah, it was actually during a time that I wasn't doing much stand up anyway. And, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I'm, so it. I'm just, in, but, and that's the way you, you know, you introduce uh, the subject. And it's a, it's a very profound chapter. And I just, could you sort of sum up what your thinking was there? And, and it's interesting because it makes me think that comedy muscle in your brain is never quiet. That even when the most devastating mm. thing that it's possible to imagine happens to you, there's still something in there going... Is it probably a joke I could make about this? Well, I think that is, that's what I realised is, I mean, in, earlier in the book, I talked a little bit about hypervigilance, that perpetual sense of, judge, you know, wondering what everyone else is thinking and what they're thinking about you and all those kind of things, which comes from uh, a car crash I was in when I was a kid, amongst other things. And it is true that 
almost every and, and in some ways it's to control the anxiety everything you look at every if i go around an art gallery every picture can i what can i turn that into can i turn that into something can i turn that walking down the street overhearing something a couple of kids talking about a date they're going to go on a kfc what can i turn that into all of those things so you're right in the same way you know when my house flooded with sewage in one side it was kind of like oh no i've lost everything i own but the moment I went up on stage that night and Stuart Lee had actually said to me, go and talk about it. You've lost a thousand records. So I went on and I did this 20 minutes. So, and in the same way, I, I do think it's, and I don't know whether it's healthy or not, or whether it is. I mean, a lot of what I think I've realized since putting the book out is that part of what we need to do as human beings is take events in our lives and take sometimes those things that we realize are bothersome and make them into a shape that you can then look at. And sometimes that shape is a story. So by having us, you know, I talk about inner voices and the fact that avatar therapy, where they people who have very intrusive, what appear to be alien voices, being able to turn them, actually create a face for that voice is very useful for some people because when that voice starts, they can look at something else and look it in the eyes. So in the same way, it is true when... Uh, you know, when my mum died, but before long, I was starting to think about different little things that had happened and how they may well become a story. And I, I spoke to my, my friend, Philippa Perry, she's a brilliant therapist. Um, and she, you know, she, when we first met, this was before my mum died and anything like that, she said to me, if you're still joking about something, then it means you haven't come to terms with it. And then she said, no, there's different, actually, there's different things. Like she said, sometimes there's a joke where you're accepting the reality and still finding a punchline. And that's the difference. There's, there's the joke that avoids reality. So, you know, that four weeks in when I went and did my first gig, and I really wanted to do the gig because I wanted to talk about it in a different way. Sometimes you, this is a strange thing as well. With family and with close friends, there are things you can't talk about. But with strangers, and that's what, that's what I find fascinating about some of the things people will come up to me and, and tell me. I mean, in fact, on the death thing, there was a, a lovely moment when I was playing Nottingham once and I was on stage beforehand because sometimes I am. And this man came up to me and went, oh, hello, Robin, I've come to a lot of your gigs. I said, oh, yeah, I recognise you from, from the last time I was up in Nottingham. He went, I wasn't going to come tonight uh, because, uh, well, it was my mum's funeral. But then I thought, I fancy a laugh, so no pressure. <laughs> and But he wanted to share that as well. He wanted... He'd had this momentum, and I, and I think it's still in the book. I can't it was such a hell of an edit in the final week. But talking about the fact that on the night of my mum's funeral, after the funeral, I went to an awards ceremony. It is in the book. And it's, yeah, yeah. There, there were quite a few of those stories that went because that ended up being a chapter that, and I have found it's been very interesting seeing when, if you talk a little bit about death on stage, because another last week I, I had someone in the audience who actually, that's what they study. They're an academic who studies death rites, death rituals generally. And we were saying about the fact that in the UK, we're very bad at dealing with death. And that perhaps sometimes those stories you can do in stand-up, they, they allow people to, I've had an old man come up to me at a gig once in the interval before I'd even talked about any of those things he said I'm having a lovely night my son told me to come to this it's been a difficult year my wife and the fact that there's a beautiful I'm sorry if I'm going a bit off, off the point here but there's so many things that I just found fascinating the stories that people told me and the stories of people like my friend Rebecca Payton who has had to deal with two very traumatic deaths in her life and the use of her work she wrote a, a monologue called uh, Sometimes I Laugh Like My Sister um, but I and I, I sometimes, Philippa once told me about when um, sometimes old women ring up helplines like the Samaritans 
And they ring up and they say, hello, uh, I'm probably ringing the wrong line and I'm so sorry for bothering you. Um, but uh, I just wonder if you could help because I've got a lot of clothes that I want to donate, uh, men's clothes, because I don't want to just throw them away. And I wonder if you know of a charity in my area. And uh, then the person will say, oh, yes, let's say, oh, you're in Watford. Oh, there's an Oxfam there. And then, of course, they know to keep the person on the line. And they say, oh, can I ask, why do you have so many um, clothes to get rid of? And they say, um, oh, my husband died last week. They had to create a story beforehand, mm. before they felt they could then say what they're really ringing up about. Yeah, and I think we need to find more ways where people are not... It's a weird thing, isn't it? We're ashamed sometimes of actually talking about loss. And sometimes we find it harder to tell people that we love them than we do to hate and anger. And all of those things, I think... And I'm, I'm sorry if this sounds, you know... Oh, but I'm, I'm, I've, there's so much monetized venality and spite out there now. And I think we need to find as many ways as possible of saying, you know of love and of, of saying to people, you've got permission to talk about these things and share these things. I, I got a lot from your book, and that, the, the, the chapter on, on death I found uh, particularly affecting. And there is one thing I want to ask you just finally about the power of comedy. There is this sort of uh, cliche, perhaps it's not a cliche, maybe it's a cliche because it's true, is the power of comedy as far as attacking those in power. There is a counter-argument. I, I know that um, there's, a, there's a great podcast, uh, Revisionist History, which made the point that satire is actually not as powerful as we think it is. Um, and certainly, at the moment, you know, you, you watch you know, the thick of it and then you see what's happening in, in, in the real political sphere and you think, well, no, I can absolutely see how satire is not having any effect whatsoever. I, I'm interested in what your thought is. Well, I think there's a great book called Hammer and Tickle. I forget the name of the guy who wrote it, uh, Ben someone. And it's all about the jokes that were in communist Russia. And they, the jokes are very funny jokes, but they're more coping mechanisms. They're not, it's not that, I mean, you know, Alexi Sale, I think, said, uh, it might be someone else, you know, look look how effective the German cabaret movement was in bringing down Hitler. <laughs> Equally, look how effective the alternative comedy movement was in, you know, what, 1997 that the Conservatives left office. So I, I think sometimes with the, with the satire or sometimes with political comedians, it's not about bringing down the government. Sometimes those nights that you go and watch someone magnificent, you know, like, you know, Josie Long or Mark Thomas, whoever it might be, it's also just saying well we're in it together and and sometimes it's as much about the camaraderie and it's as much about the as it is about and so you know it's about giving information as well but a lot of it is about saying it's okay there's still a gang together here uh, Robin Ince's book is I'm a Joke and so are you Robin we wish happy even though you know you, you we're missing the uh, seven carols and seven lessons and carols for godless people which you don't do anymore but no I do I've, I've changed the title though oh, what's it called? I now call it No and Lesser Carols for Curious People because originally it came out I know we've talked about this yeah. I think at the Greenbelt Festival uh, originally it came out of this argument I had with this awful dogmatic and uh, fundamentalist on television and so it was kind of a joke thing but I think you know the more time's gone on the more I think the godless people was a, a joke representing something from the past and now and you know as you, as you know uh I, I i my most important thing is that old kurt vonnegut line about you know god damn it you've got to be kind so i want to make sure as many people as possible want to come and see our mad jamboree of scientists and comedians and whatever curiosity is the only thing that's required it is a oh. curiosity is such a great thing isn't it i'm sorry by the way can i just mention there's lots of jokes in the book as well because <laughs> i have i have i do realize that uh I, i've it's, it's an interesting thing when i do the show about this book i do there's lots of jokes and then suddenly it gets serious and then there's a little point where i go You've done five minutes now, serious. Get some gags in, mate. Come on. Uh, Robin, thank you very much, Steve, for coming in. <laughs> thank you. 
And that was a very fine conversation, I think, it was. With, with Robin. It's, he's, what, what's so great about the book is that he has these kind of... And it, it is full of jokes. He has lots of great ideas, explores them fully, and you kind of think you've read something of substance at the end. It's illuminating is what it is. And you can get more with Robin when he tackles the Q&A, and that'll be with you in the next few days. <laughs> 